When Dorothy starts to date a new man, she quickly falls head over heels and quickly learns that the term too good to be true just might be the case with Glenn O'Brien. Judgment and accusations fly through the house as Dorothy is left to defend herself. So let's get to all the drama in today's episode, That Was No Lady. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go. It's a beautiful evening on the lanai with the not-often-paired-together duo of Rose and Sophia. Sure, all the ladies love each other, but Sophia's patience and Rose's intelligence don't always go hand-in-hand. Yes, they are both lacking in each department. As they play the trivia board game Trivial Pursuit, which there is a mini Golden Girls version of, Rose asks Sophia who the fastest person in the world is, while the actual answer for 1985 was Jesse Owens, not the fictional Dominique Tansy, the new record holder is Usain Bolt. Jesse Owens rose to fame by winning gold during the Berlin Olympics in 1936. Those four wins were hugely important, not only because it brought the gold to the U.S. on Hitler's turf, but put just a little bit of a kink in Hitler's whole white supremacy thing. I was reading an article that actually compared the two runners to see who of the two really was the fastest or would be if they were both running today. When measuring timing only, Usain has the upper hand, but that doesn't take into account that he's running on scientifically developed track with scientifically developed shoes while drinking scientifically created sports drinks and so forth. Unlike Jesse, who had to run in things that barely qualified as shoes on a track made of wooden ash. So we'll have to leave it as a tie for now. Sorry, Sophia. Dominic Tanzi getting four women pregnant in two different states in one night might be fast, but not in the way Trivial Pursuit is asking. Hey, Alicia, Coco here. Hi, Coco. Did you have anyone in your neighborhood school growing up that was known that just uh, got a lot of people pregnant? Was there, was there a... <laughs> I thought you were asking, can I ask about running? Did you have a track star? <laughs> Someone that got a lot of people pregnant? Not really. I don't, yeah, I never really knew anybody like that. What about you? No, no, <laughs> no, I didn't associate with athletes generally. <laughs> Maybe a couple of mathletes. Though I Ooh. wasn't, I wasn't one, but I may You just associate. hung out with them? Well, just, you know, we were all in the cast off group. <laughs> The over there guys. And you're like, hey guys, I'm the cool one. Hey, you're the hey, mathlete. You don't speak uh, ever? I don't speak ever. Let's hang out and never speak to each other. And be best friends. Best friends forever. <laughs> As the ladies continue their game, Blanche arrives and is excited to announce that after years of talking about it, she is getting her dream car. Although she might now be considering putting a trapeze over her bed per Sophia's suggestion. So Blanche lays that pamphlet down about the car. What kind of car do you think she's getting? What is Blanche's dream car? 
maybe like a, a convertible Buick Century. Yeah, is that like I just picture big, like yes, not an '80s car. I picture her like my Grammy, her dream big pink Cadillac. Mm-hmm. So I picture, yeah, like a convertible, like maybe a big white Mm. boat of a car. Yeah, I would think something that would look more uh, modern for the times. So like maybe a really ugly uh, Mustang or something like that. Oh, yeah. When cars, when when nice like sports cars just look like. terrible. Yes. (laughs) When they were the posters at the book fair. (laughs) And you're like, I guess I'll put this up. Like, cool, that's a Corvette. Uh, And we, we like these. You guys see it, right? You see this car, but it's cool. And it says success underneath the car, so (laughs) (laughs) you know it's good. So they go hand in hand. Absolutely. (laughs) Zoom, zoom. When Sophia mentions that Rose is in the market for a car, therefore could buy Blanche's old one, Blanche refuses. She learned from her great-grandfather, you don't sell cars to friends. Her great-granddaddy's advice also gives us a big oh boy, because he not only taught her the valuable idea of not mixing friends with car sales, but to not sell a slave to a friend either. Because just like with a car, if it stops working, you'll never hear the end of it. (sighs) Lucky for all of us, Blanche's racist grandpappy was hung because of his dumb mouth. Not to interrupt again, but did they say that in the episode? Yeah. I missed that. He was hung? She said, well, but then they hung my granddaddy. He said a lot of stupid things. (laughs) So she she acknowledges that it's bad, but she's also still carrying on his words of wisdom. So it's kind of like... She's halfway there. <laughs> the the lesson is still good. Yes. It's a good it's a good good lesson. Have you ever intermingled business and friends or selling something like that or money at all or are you smart? I am smart. Also, I don't have anything. <laughs> <laughs> I've never I can't I've never been in a position where a friend was like, "Ooh, I would like that thing that you have." Right. And I would definitely not sell my car to a friend because I my cars by the time I'm ready to sell them, you don't want them. <laughs> They're done. They're done. They are tired. Yeah. They need to be put away in the stable. Blanche, realizing she shouldn't be taking the advice of a dead slave owner, changes her mind and she offers her car to Rose. Rose gives the offer a thanks but no thanks as she wants something a little less flashy and less available seeming. Blanche doesn't get that it's the whole car saying that, not just her personalized available plates, which I'm not sure how she got away with. Because that's a lot of letters. It's usually only seven. A V A L B L B L E A V L A V A L A V A I L A B L E. Yeah, that's too many. I know. It's <laughs> <laughs> nine. A V L. Oh, A V L B L E. You oh, get it. There you go. A V L B L E. Fun fact, Virginia is the state with the highest amount of vanity plates, with about one in every six cars having one. Blanche pushes Rose to take her car for just two weeks to try it out and then see if she likes it. Rose is hesitant, but soon is beaming with excitement about her wild choice to use her friend's car. Dorothy arrives and comes nearly floating out the back door across the lanai in a, you guessed it, purple sweater. Her voice is almost singing as she tells Blanche she needs her to give her a manicure, and she doesn't really ask so much as demand to use Rose's pearls, and tells Sophia to stay off her back. It's almost rude in the lack of manners, but also shows you just how close they are, that they don't have to worry about that. 
Dorothy doesn't waste time worrying about manners. She has Sophia to deal with, a Sophia that is curious why she's being asked to lay off before even knowing what's going on. Dorothy opens up that her excitement and need for pampering comes from the fact that she is going out on a first date. I'm not sure what time they start first dates in Miami, given that it's dark out and she hasn't even started getting ready. Besides Dorothy's huge purple blanket of a shirt, we have Sophia in a precious teal blue cardigan with lace collar, Rose in a sweet springy floral dress, and Blanche in a businesswoman's special outfit. The man of the evening is a Glenn O'Brien, hence why Dorothy didn't want Sophia to give her any grief. With a name like O'Brien, it's clear he is an Italian. Nor is he, as the oh boy Sophia delivers, just another drunk Irishman that was found at a gin mill. The stereotype of Irish drunks is actually deeply rooted in the anti-immigration movement in the Boston area of the 1800s. Over just a few years, 37,000 Irish immigrants came to the Boston area. Those that were already established forced them to live in dilapidated areas and started to refer to them as drunkards or the drunks that were unwilling to work. Hmm, almost like those ideas sound vaguely familiar to this day. Glenn isn't a drunk, though. He's a gym teacher at the school Dorothy has been subbing at, and she knows how to make a point of slowly saying gorgeous gym teacher straight at Blanche so she could be jealous and horny, a deadly combination. Catching each other's eyes the few days she was working there, Dorothy eventually cut the lunch line so she could end up by Glenn, and they struck up a conversation. She fell for him immediately, and he asked her out. While they barely know each other, Dorothy is elated. Since she hasn't dated much since her divorce and she got married so young, this really, unlike Blanche, could be the first time she's ever felt so strongly towards a man, especially one that's basically a stranger. Nearly out of breath from Dorothy's retelling of the lunchroom wooing, Blanche calls it being hit with a thunderbolt, or love at first sight. Sticking to her Blancheness, she of course tells her own story of being struck. Before she can even get started, Sophia gets in a jab. That Blanche's getting struck by lightning happens more than it does at the World Trade Center. Too soon. She says that because the World Trade Center towers, and now one World Trade Center, were and are the tallest buildings in Manhattan. They had special poles installed at the top to keep the lightning that was drawn to the tall towers from striking people or the building itself. The World Trade Towers would get struck about 20 times a year, which, seeing as we've been with Blanche for only a few weeks or months at this point, and she's gotten engaged and wanted to marry several guys already, that seems like a fair comparison point for Sophia. Rose chimes in with her thunderbolt story, again Sophia getting a jab by leaning to Dorothy to say, yeah, directly to the forehead. Rose ignores her completely and continues with her story. The lightning strike had hit her at the tender age of seven when she first met her future husband, Charlie. With the mention of him being eight at the time, the girls realize they are in for a long story and they all get a little bit more comfortable. Rose recounts the hot Minnesota summer day when she saw Charlie with a corner stand, but unlike most children having a lemonade stand, Charlie's was insurance. Rose got her wagon covered, but soon after, just like all of us who had wagons as a kid, it was destroyed after being trampled by some hogs. You know, typical kid stuff. Although her policy didn't cover pigs attacking her wagon with a ham in it, Charlie covered it and got her a new one. 
She fell in love right then and there. Dorothy and the rest of the girls are just left pondering the sentence that came out of Rose's mouth, acts of swine. Coco. Hello. Have you ever been struck by lightning, the love at first sight kind or real kind? Only in my dreams. Oh, yeah, that's never sweet. in uh, never in real life. Have you had lust at first sight where you're like, I need like, you know that because that's what I I don't think love at first sight is a thing, but you see someone and it's like you're drawn not just an attraction level but like drawn to them, you know? You, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's really sweet. You're welcome. Oh, mm. like eight years ago. Yeah, I mean, oh. I was just instantly when you first opened your mouth and you first showed up, I was just like, wow. Oh. And I still wow. Oh my god! We'll be right back after this commercial break. <laughs> <laughs> but no real lightning. No real lightning. I've never. <laughs> I've never no. Have you ever come close? Are you scared of lightning? So. Tell no. me everything about your thoughts of lightning. I love I love the sound of uh, thunder and lightning. Yeah. I love storms. I'm not afraid of them. I would not go outside because I feel like it, I would be hit by lightning for sure. Right? Yeah. You're nodding your head. I know that you agree. I yeah. would definitely between the two of us, <laughs> I would get hit by lightning. We cut to the outside of a hotel, the most unusual of shots, to join Glenn and Dorothy in a room. It's not nearly as nice as the place Stan was staying in a few weeks ago, nor does it actually look like a hotel room. I'm pretty sure it's the same furniture and hideous decorations as the master bedroom from Everybody Loves Raymond. And if we're going to talk ugliest TV sets in history, I'm going Roseanne, I'm going The Middle, I'm going Three's Company. Oh, yeah, that one was pretty bad. Just mustard. Malcolm in the Middle. Oh, yeah. Anytime they try to do like. Married to Children is really bad, too. Oh, yeah. That's a really, that's a, I mean, I love that, that whole show. show. So I couldn't fun. watch that oh, show. Every part it. of that show was. Anytime they do Middle America, they're like, eh, everything's just kind of ugly. Nothing and matches. Nothing matches. And there's just clutter everywhere and ugly colors of paint because I, people don't care. I would say. Even the well, definitely the Friends set. Really, is a, is a nightmare Ooh, controversial. To me. I just well, I don't like it. I don't like them. I don't like <laughs> any of it. The only thing I like about their apartment is the space and the window, the yeah. big window. Other than that, I just it's it's very open, and that is that's not that's not for me. <laughs> I like to make my bowls of cinnamon toast crunch and privat. <laughs> you mean pivot? Glenn O'Brien is played by actor Alex Rocco. Interesting casting someone with the last name Rocco when making a very specific point that the guy is Irish, especially since Mr. Rocco's birth name is Alessandro Frederico Petricone Jr., and his parents were Italian immigrants. Alex Rocco was one of the great character actors with over 170 credits to his name. And while that list has a lot of one-hit wonders, or should I say, O-Needers, he has classic roles like Mo Green from The Godfather, Roger Myers Jr. on The Simpsons, and Soul Siler, my personal sandwich-spitting favorite from That Thing You Do. It's Coco. Hi, Coco. That... Fun fact about Alex Rocco was the only thing I wrote down is that he's in that thing you do. Yes. And that he's, he's eating a sandwich and he yells at Jonathan Sheck, I think. Yes. And uh, it's all I can ever picture when he's the, because he's the record label guy and he's just chowing on that sandwich. He's like, 
get this kid out of here. I'm trying to eat. And the yeah. sandwich is going. And I don't care what else I see him. And he will never not be that angry guy with the food falling out of his just face. Just like a perfect uh, music executive. Yes. He's just doesn't care. Yes. Is not does not care about the artists. Get this kid away from me while he's yeah, spitting corned beef all over him. Yes. It's great. I mean, it's like they went out of their way to find the most Italian person to play yeah, it's like the, the Irish guy. Because <laughs> you didn't need to make the joke then. Like, don't reference it to Sophia that he's not Italian. You don't yeah. even need to bring it up. You just cut it and it doesn't matter. But now instead it's like, you know, this guy seems real Italian. Even in how he talks, he's just waiting to go full like it's, Sopranos. It's like they they wanted to do some crappy Irish jokes and they just shoehorned it in there. Yeah. They already had Alex Rocco, who's like a legend. And yeah. Like, oh, I guess he's still, he's Irish, I guess. Yeah, we'll you know what Irish. Hey, you know what? He could be adopted. He's a, oh yeah. He, well, he's a character actor. I mean, too. for example, my last name is Scottish. Baby, I ain't Scottish. The more you know, listeners. <laughs> Dorothy is giving us grade A mirror acting here as she fiddles with her earring and talks about how amazing the last three weeks have been with Glenn. And Glenn concurs. Dorothy adds that this amazing feeling is coming from, and she doesn't exactly say these words, but... She likes this guy so much that she's allowing herself to be emotionally vulnerable. She's also allowing for physical vulnerabilities, like making love during the day. But, like, what day is it? It's not a school day, apparently, since you both need to be at work, so perhaps it's the weekend? So why are we in a hotel after three weeks? Is this a romantic getaway? While Glenn's hideous, I'm a businessman, but I like to golf outfit is upsetting, Dorothy's is actually fantastic and isn't just a bunch of extra cloth draped across her. She's in a very light gray, maybe super light lavender sweater with two large light green 8-bit looking flowers on it with the collar of her light yellow undershirt popped out adorned with a long pearl necklace. It's actually the same outfit she's wearing in the opening credits scene, the one that's cut where Blanche bites her sleeve. Glenn dotes on Dorothy before she starts to say how unbelievable it is that they're in love. He's already saying I love you at three weeks? Red flag. Glenn's equally smoke-smelling sounding voice as Dorothy's is mildly repulsive as they continue their sappy conversation mere inches from one another's mouths. Dorothy says that part of her comfort with Glenn was that she wasn't consumed with the thoughts she normally experiences with lovers, that she was able to be in the moment and not worry about her breath, her body, or babies. It's a frank and honest openness about sex that somehow, even 36 years later, seems progressive. You don't often hear women talk about those insecurities, which leads to unsatisfying sex. But it's true. Dorothy and Glenn embrace and kiss, but it's a weird 50s-style kiss where they just kind of smash their mouths together and rub their faces around a little and then part silently. Fun fact, did you know that the sound of kissing is because one of the kissers is the one that's making that sound? It's like a subconscious thing, but the noise is not just a natural noise from the lips parting. You or your partner or both of you are making the isn't that an upsetting fun fact that you'll think about every time you kiss from now on? You're welcome. Yes. <laughs> Did you not know that? 
You told me that a while ago. Oh, okay. And I literally think about it all the time. <laughs> whenever I'm doing some some private kissing. And I mean kissing in private. All right. Now we have some clarification of what day it is. She says they should go to the Bahamas and get horny in a hotel room. But if she wants to get away, why are they in a hotel room now and not just at Glenn's house? Bum, bum, bum. To Dorothy's offer, Glenn says he can't do it and walks her to sit at the end of the bed. If someone tells you to sit on the end of the bed... You're done. You're... Forget it. Get out of there. Then we see Dorothy has once again turned her figure into a box with her favorite khaki-colored I'm-a-substitute skirt. As Glenn's voice starts to take on a morose tone and Dorothy senses it isn't a good something to talk about, Glenn takes a moment as Dorothy oh-gods before dropping the mother of all bombs. He is a married man. Dorothy takes pause before Glenn starts to defend himself. It's fine, he begins to reason. The marriage sucks and should have been over a long time ago. Cool, so you're just a coward then? Hot. Dorothy calls him out for lying to her because, yes, he lied. No one should have to say, hey, before we hook up, are you by any chance married? Lying by omission, I believe they call it. Dorothy shuts down and starts to grab her things. She is going full Sally Field and Mrs. Doubtfire. Dorothy starts to speak for Glenn's wife, which she can do because she's been in her position before, reciting things she undoubtedly heard from Stan, like, let's stay together for the kids, or you just don't get me. Glenn pleads his case. He had to stay with his wife, otherwise she would have moved them back to her hometown across the country. Dorothy smells the BS right away on that one, since his kids are both over 30, so they could literally live wherever they want and the marriage has nothing to do with it. Glenn just keeps going even though Dorothy is clearly upset and asking to not hear it. I say clearly upset because she tries to leave the room via the bathroom door. Glenn changes gears talking about how good they have it and it shouldn't end just because of one pesky little marriage. Even with Dorothy's emotional, you lied to me, Glenn just keeps pushing. Don't end this, he says, like it would be her fault or something. Get out of here with that. Queen Dorothy is a hero to us all in this moment. As Glenn begs her to stay and to ignore the fact that he's too chicken to end his miserable marriage, Dorothy is like, Welp, it's not hard for me to end this. Bye. And she walks right out. I really, I feel bad for uh, Mrs. O'Brien. And I hope that she either sees the light or dies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because it's. Is she miserable or does she have no idea that he's going around town saying, no, it's not even it's not even a marriage. We don't even care about each other. Or has she been cheating on him for decades? Either way, get out of there, dude. Just be done. God, people, people. Life is really short. Don't waste a second of it in an unhappy relationship of any kind. Yeah. Work. It, yes. Friends. Love. Yeah, it's funny. You know, we do it. We always talk about relationships like romantic ones Mm -hmm. but people don't think about those other ones you need to get out of as well Mm -mm. and what i am saying in 2021 is get out of all relationships (laughs) 
We go back to the house where we find Sophia in her oh-so-comfy-looking teal muumuu with fabulous 80s random New Mexico-inspired shapes on the shoulders, and she's flipping through a magazine while Blanche, in a yellow button-up with white and yellow pants, is doing her nails on the couch. Rose arrives in a gray pant, gray and pink cardigan, and similarly 80s-designed shirt outfit thing. When she starts asking Blanche about the weird noise the borrowed car had been making that is now getting worse. Sophia, ever the mechanic, says it sounds the same as the noises a former Shady Pines resident was making the night he was gurneyed out. Blanche isn't bothered with Sophia's comments. Instead, she starts defending her car, that it hasn't had any issues except sometimes it doesn't turn over in the morning, just like the guy from Shady Pines. Turning over a car means to start it. Turning over for a dead guy is just impossible. When Rose mentions she might take it to a mechanic before pursuing keeping it, Blanche is offended and warns her of the danger of getting ripped off. That's because auto repair is the third highest complained about industry according to the Better Business Bureau, and mechanics are often listed as the most untrustworthy industry. Ouch. Listening to Blanche convince Rose to not get the car checked because, you know, they'll want you to spend money because the car needs to be repaired, Sophia's bummed she can't ride the idiot coaster and try to sell Rose a car as well. The phone rings, and stepping over Blanche's unwilling to move from the coffee table legs, Rose answers the phone. On the other line is Glenn, calling for the fourth time that day. Rose recites the script they have for him about Dorothy never coming home, and then finds out who she's talking to. Turns out it was someone from the school district, not, as Rose then told the man from the school district, the man she's having an affair with. Fun that they might both lose their jobs over her slip-up. We then get a lot of oh boys as Rose is trying to fix her slip-up, working from the word affair to fair and then saying Mr. Yamamoto, the school district man with a Japanese-sounding last name, would be fair with Dorothy. And polite. And good at math. You know, just those stereotypes. The math one coming because, yes, a few Asian countries have the world's highest scores in math, but it's not all Asian countries. It more so has to do with investing in education and teachers. Some of those same countries, according to theconversation.com, also had the highest scores in reading. So why isn't the joke about literacy? Rose then tries to celebrate that, I'm so glad you got your own Disneyland, referencing Tokyo Disney, which opened in 1983. The icing on the racist cake comes from Rose telling Mr. Yamamoto goodbye multiple times and bowing more dramatically with each one. Yikes. In re-watching these to come out and record, I'm seeing them through a different lens, and even just in these few episodes we've done, Rose tends to have the racist jokes. And I wonder if that was a way of getting away with it. Like, if you let the dumb blonde or the naive farm girl from the midwest from the midwest yeah, or like whatever that is the north it Mid- kind of like world. lets you get away with it cuz dorothy would never i mean they all have their moments where they say stuff that's like oh but rose definitely is more consistent and i wonder if that was kind of their i wonder if that was purposely written that like a get around yeah like the stuff. racist jokes went to rose because They're you don't inno- get mad it's innocent racism it's not it's not pointed or yeah you can't be mad if she's dumb yeah Yeah. uh but uh uh-oh that's not how racism works (laughs) that's whether you know it or not that's still racist 
Rose summons Dorothy from her room, informing her of the teaching job Mr. Yamamoto called to offer. Dorothy, wearing a light blue shirt that looks actually comfy as hell because it might have been purchased from the maternity department, and if you're not pregnant and have not shopped that department, you are missing out. They have the stretchiest pants, the flowiest shirts, great dresses for big-boobed and big-bellied bitches like myself. Dorothy shakes off the call. She's not ready to go back to work. Still heartbroken, Rose inquires if she's upset about Glenn. This, of course, leaves Dorothy wide open for one of her classic no-it's-because quips. This time her sadness is due to the fact that Phyllis George left the morning news. Hold on to your hats for this one. Phyllis George gained fame in 1970 when she won Miss Texas. The following year, she would upgrade her crown to win Miss America. She got her first TV gig working as a co-host for Candid Camera. In 1974, Phyllis would be a trailblazer by becoming one of the first and only women to be a sportscaster. She started hosting pregame shows for the NFL and covered the big horse races. Not one to stay in a box. Throughout her career, she was on The Muppet Show, had her own talk show where she spoke to President Clinton, had a chicken company, had a makeup company, was the founder of the Kentucky Museum of Arts and Crafts, was in Meet the Parents, wrote five books, and yes, was on CBS's The Morning News. This juicy story is where Dorothy's comment comes in. Phyllis had been hired, despite having minimal TV experience covering football, as an anchor for the CBS Morning News. While her appearance didn't help the ratings much, she did cause a bit of an uproar. In May of 1985, there was a strange press tour going on involving Gary Dotson, a man that had just come out of prison after serving six years for a sexual assault charge. And the other person talking to the press with him? Kathleen Webb the woman that accused him of the attack, but then recanted and said it never happened. We don't have the time to get into it here, and so I'll probably have to tell this story as a Patreon for Murder in the Rain because there's a lot of detail. Anyway, so these two were talking to anyone that would listen. This included a stop at CBS with Phyllis George. At the end of the interview, she, for some reason, asked them to shake hands, and they, for many reasons, obviously, didn't want to. Her suggestion? For them to hug it out. Needless to say, many an angry phone call came in, and after just eight months, it was clear that it was not Phyllis's bag, and she was fired, making room for one Maria Shriver to become a co-host. It's been a week since Glenn broke Dorothy's heart, but they were only together for three weeks, so it is a little bit like... Girl, come on. He deserves not another second of your time. Rose tries to reassure Dorothy that she's done the right thing, but her cheerful words don't help because even knowing he's married, Dorothy wishes she was still with him. Blanche almost helps by pointing out Dorothy isn't a schoolgirl anymore. You can't just have a crush one minute and forget about it the next. Although she simply must point out in this moment that she does in fact get mistaken for a schoolgirl quite frequently. In a surprising move, Blanche says that, hey, they're adults. If his marriage is really miserable, what's the harm in being together? Rose is shocked Blanche is condoning their behavior, but Blanche corrects her. I'm not condoning. I'm just not judging, as we all should be towards all relationships. If it doesn't involve you and it involves consenting adults, shush. 
Blanche is powerful when she tells Rose, hey, life sucks, and like one of my favorite Janis Joplin songs, you gotta get it while you can. Rose counters back. That kind of selfish, unfaithful behavior is what broke up famous pairs like Debbie and Eddie. Debbie Reynolds, a name you might recognize as a potential future roommate and star of one of my favorite movies, What's the Matter with Helen, was married to Eddie Fisher, a famous singer, and they were the parents to Mrs. Princess Leia herself, Carrie Fisher. Eddie cheated on his wife, Debbie, with her best friend, Elizabeth Taylor. That pair, Eddie and Liz, were married after Elizabeth Taylor's boyfriend died in a plane crash, but she soon left Eddie Fisher because she was having an affair with her co-star in Cleopatra, Richard Burton. Richard, or Dick, as part of Dick and Liz, was on and off with Elizabeth Taylor for years. Their toxic, drunken mess of a relationship led to them twice marrying and divorcing each other. When it comes to Martin and Lewis, that was Dean Martin of the Rat Pack, and that's Amore fame, and he was one half of the beloved and mega-famous comedy duo Martin and Lewis, Jerry Lewis of Cinderfella and Telethon fame making up the other half. They were an odd pairing that somehow worked, leading to their own radio show, television show, and movies. That was until Dean wanted to do some solo stuff again, leading Jerry to be bitter and them just not ever talking again. Wow, brave men. I bet they would get along really well with Glenn. Finally, Rowan and Martin, a.k.a. Dan Rowan and Dick Martin, a comedy duo that got started in nightclubs but became most famous for their far-out show, Laughing. You know the one where Goldie Hawn has a sunflower painted on her tummy while she does the pony to psychedelic music and then doors on the walls open up to reveal celebrities and actors on the show giving cheesy one-liner jokes? That one. They broke up after the show ended, and they went their separate ways. I'm not sure if those two qualify as comparisons, Rose, but that's okay. Sock it to me, sock it to me. Sock it to yourself. Sock it to me? The phone rings again, and this time it is Glenn. Playing the angel and devil to each of Dorothy's sides are Rose and Blanche. Rose begging her to hang up on the bed hopper, Blanche begging her to hop. Dorothy holds her boundaries, though. I asked you not to call here, and you're making things difficult. It's a short phone call, mostly disrupted by the girls telling her what to do, but she does hang up on him. Unsure of her decision, Dorothy laments it feels like the end of the world. The girls go to start dinner, leaving Dorothy to process her choice. But instead, she picks up the phone and dials Glenn as fast as she can. She even has to pull the, it's me, Dorothy, like he asked who was on the phone. If you're so in love, you know the voice, Glenn, and you are trash. Dorothy starts to open up about how much she's missed him, but then Rose comes back in. Knowing she's doing the wrong thing, she pulls the, yes, Mr. Yamamoto, I'll be there, and hangs up on Glenn before solidifying an actual plan to meet up and talk. We're in the living room, and even though all the lights are off, that's okay because Dorothy is glowing. Not like the lady in the maternity clothing section, but I think her entire outfit is made of that 80s day glow stuff. She is 5 feet 10 inches of foiled Christmas wrapping paper green flowy pant, and what would you call that, a loose blazer with a sateen purple scarf and yellow shirt and gold shoes? As you said when you saw it, Coco, the Riddler. She looks like she's going to Six Flags Magic Mountain to the... <laughs> Opening of a roller coaster. It's not a subtle entry into a room. It is it is truly the loudest outfit I think I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. 
six foot, six feet of green yeah. silk. And, and it, no and offense, it, some big old gold shoes. <laughs> The green part kind of has a pattern. I don't really know how to describe it, where it's like just a little bit lighter than the green of the outfit. So it's like this hint of a lighter green. Yeah. I think it's what you'd see sort pattern. of on like a well old wallpaper, like yes. saloon wallpaper, yeah. or like a a foiled a, wallpaper, an old west uh, card player's vest. Yes. Yeah. Blanche wears things to get attention, and Dorothy is always just like, "I don't care. I'm wearing what I want to wear." But that is. I guess maybe not in 1985 Miami. Maybe no one noticed that outfit because if you wore it today, it'd be like, whoa, yeah. did you see that girl with that green outfit? But yeah, they were like, she saw six other yeah. women wearing that. that she's, day. Like, she's like, I have to go home and change. We're all in the same she's outfit. Like, I, I try to find the most unique stuff. Everybody's got the stuff already. What do I do? It's clearly evening as it is dark outside, and Rose is coming out of the kitchen in her bathrobe. Shockingly, she is not carrying a plate of 43 Oreos. Dorothy's feeling defensive, and before anyone even asks what she's been doing, she's like, I can see Glenn if I want. Rose is shaken and upset. She wants nothing to do with it, and neither does Dorothy. But of course, they both want to talk about it and to each other. Rose offers to make a sandwich for Dorothy as she's doing that for herself. Dorothy declines because she just had dinner with Glenn. This delights sweet Rose because it sounds like they just went out to dinner. You can always tell when Dorothy knows she's in the wrong because she gets just a little mean. She just kind of crosses that line. It's not her usual roasting mean, which is her baseline behavior, but kind of a real aggressive choice. This interaction is no exception. She knows Rose is sacred and traditional about marriage, and she's pretty open about her judgments towards Dorothy about it. Hence why Dorothy is like, yeah, we ate, and then we went to a motel. Bow chicka bow wow. Rose is horrified and uses her full on mom voice to say, Dorothy! She then goes on to judge motels, which seems really unfair. They did nothing wrong. Rose is so fuming, she even goes Old Testament and calls a hotel a den of iniquity, aka a freaky place for freaky people to do freaky things. Dorothy sees Rose's Bible reference and doubles down with Bible Quran reference of, we didn't go to Sodom and Gomorrah, the two cities mentioned in the holy books that were basically sin cities pre-Las Vegas. What is the worst hotel or motel you ever stayed at, Coco? Do you have a horror story? No, not that I remember. I don't think I've really ever stayed in anywhere that was like disgusting. The, the, truly like the, sh the shadiest place I ever stayed was when we were in New York. I was going to say Hotel, hotel Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. <laughs> uh, and it honestly, people, if you're going to travel in New York, it's right next to Penn Station and Madison Square Garden, and it wasn't that bad. I have I would no give it, complaints. For that kind of hotel, I would give it three, four stars yeah. for a kind of rundown hotel. It was crazy expensive. Uh, there was a dead bird out the window. Mm -hmm. um, cables. cables hanging off the television. <laughs> there was something. Oh, the carpet. There was like a big chunk of carpet missing right when we got in the door. Both of the knobs on the bathroom faucet were hot. <laughs> That's right. They, they weren't, they weren't, but they were both labeled hot. Um, the door was like a submarine door. It was like a weird It had some innovation. Metal vault. It was like a, a pass-through door, I think. Like yeah. it had like a, it had a door in the door that you could open and pass food through or something. It was like, at the time it was a big deal. <laughs> Definitely haunted. Yeah. Definitely scary. Yeah. And there was a, 
Didn't that that guy go on like uh, who was on LSD? Or oh whatever yeah, it was where that window? guy, um, Alan. Oh, anyway, the LSD guy. Yeah, yeah. He, that's where he did all his studies. Was at the Hotel Pennsylvania. What it's a crazy a cool place. place. Man. Oh, and then we did do the black light at the end. Oh boy. And that was upsetting. So many splatters <laughs> on every surface. And the worst place I've ever gotten. It's called the Downtowner Inn in Houston, Texas. I don't know if it still exists. Very long story short, was there for American Idol about 20 years ago, and we just needed to go bathe because we'd been in cars for days, and we get to a pay-by-the-hour motel called the Downtowner Inn and turn on the television, and it was very graphic porn, like just the camera was just right all up in there, and then we realized we were maybe being vacancied because it kind of looked like it was in that same room. And then we used the shower, or I used the shower. We each used it individually, and it was black tile. And I don't know if you've ever bathed with black tile, but it's very reflective, so you see everything. So you're just watching yourself bathe, (laughs) meaning people are watching themselves shower together. And that also had a black light, and I did turn it on, and that was a very bad idea. Dorothy starts to go into more detail about the night, but Rose stops her and they storm off from each other. Rose sits solemnly at the kitchen table, but soon Dorothy comes in through the door explaining she was nervous so she really didn't eat that much at dinner. Rose gets a rare nasty burn in here with, then the rest of the night must have really worked up an appetite. Dorothy doesn't have anything to say to it, and before they can go at each other anymore, Blanche comes in, surprised to see everyone up, everyone that is except Sophia. Where the heck is she? You know she's going to have some things to say about what Dorothy's doing. I'd also like to take a moment here to acknowledge that they are all in comfortable-looking pajamas. Rose is in a very fluffy robe. Blanche is in her flowy silk nightgown. It looks actually sleepable. So good job, ladies. Progress. Rose has a snotty voice when explaining they're up because Dorothy's having an affair, but maybe Blanche can give some advice. She might as well be saying, whores. This is a little bit of a plot whoopsie for the future because Dorothy and Blanche both go back and forth on their thoughts of being with a married man. I guess everyone's allowed to grow and change. Blanche's advice? Don't ever check into a motel as Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Always check in as Mr. and Mrs. Don Shula, the head coach of the American football team, the Miami Dolphins, from 1970 to 1995. The two-time Super Bowl winner's hometown hero status is why Blanche does that, so that her hotel rooms will come with fruit and champagne. Dorothy starts to go to bed before we realize her necklace is 300 inches long, and I'm surprised she didn't trip on it, as Rose outs her for seeing Glenn. Blanche doesn't pass judgment. She just starts one of her back-in-Georgia stories about a cousin that dated a married man for 15 years. That was until his wife shot him in the boxer shorts region. He didn't die, but his libido did. With her nose in the air, Rose spouts, Evil is as evil does, before Dorothy loses it. She is sick of the judgment towards her relationship, especially from someone that doesn't know anything about it. Turning to Blanche for such advice, she admits she's actually never been with a married man because it wasn't worth it. Rose excitedly gives a C look before Blanche continues, well, it wasn't worth it because the guilt jewelry has always been the nicest and always goes to the wife. So a point to Dorothy. 
Blanche continues snacking on her midnight olives while Dorothy gets back to explaining herself to Judge Rosie. She's in love. She's happy. Those things matter. Not the status of the guy's relationship. Not if it's right or wrong. She's happy. Although I don't know why she's barely picking at a piece of chocolate cake with her fingertips. She didn't bother to get a fork. And Rose never eats the sandwich that she specifically got up to go make. All of it's very sad. It's because of the emotion of the event. They're just all flustered. It's true. You don't have time for forks. I rarely can eat cry. I know that became a thing online years ago. Yeah. No. Every once in a while I can be upset and maybe get an ice cream bite that will like calm me down. But no, let me go cry and then I'm going to want to eat. The only things I really want when I'm crying generally is like a glass of water. Yeah. Because I'm I'm pretty – when I start going, <laughs> they don't start flowing. I think I said starp. <laughs> Sophia finally comes into the kitchen in a cozy terry cloth robe and has clearly been eavesdropping. She knew about Glenn from before and now knows Dorothy's seeing him again. Dorothy seems shocked that Sophia knew even though she had just been listening through the door. She didn't have a TV show from 1970 to 1975 or tour for decades doing magic, hypnotism, and psychic predictions like the great Kreskin, the magician Sophia references. Dorothy's judgment of Sophia's eavesdropping leads to an almost dirty joke. I can't put my ear to the door, but you can put your... Let's play a round of fill in the blanks. on the counter. (laughs) I mean, I was thinking... Lips on a married man's What's wrong with on a counter? That was just unexpected. All right. I can't put my ear on the door, but you can put your on a naked man's Put your in my soup. (laughs) (laughs) But you can put your on the chair. I like it when the pets watch. As upset as Sophia is that Dorothy's seeing Glenn again, she's actually the most upset because as the second woman, Dorothy isn't respecting herself. Now she's just a floozy. Floozy comes from the word flossy, which actually started out as a complimentary word used to describe elegant or attractive women. By the mid-1900s, floozy meant party girl and soon evolved into the term it is today, meaning a loose woman. It's the next night, and Sophia is rocking out her frustrations via some air guitar out on the lanai. I do not miss those janky, foam-covered headphones with the flimsy headband piece, though. You had some thoughts about her air guitar skills. I did, yes, but I was going to say that we should—I think that we should bring Flossie back. Oh, okay. Should that be our thing? Can we start saying Flossie? Oh, she's like, a real Flossie. She's looking real Flossie today. Oh, I like that. Let's do it. It looks like Sophia is— I'll say oiling a shotgun when she is playing air guitar. Yeah, and that definitely. is a very PG version of what I was a gonna say. Oh, I see what you mean. I felt mm. it was almost more cello because Ooh. she had the left hand kind of going up and down like it was on the neck and the right kind of going across like a bow. I would say that to go with my shotgun mm. uh, metaphor that her one hand was doing the, sh- the shotgun and the other one was reaching for the shells, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> As Sophia is rocking out to, I'm going to throw out that it's Dire Straits' Money for Nothing, because that was the biggest rock song of 85, Rose comes running in from the back gate, and it sounds urgent. Sophia and Rose look lovely, but 
kind of unremarkable. While Blanche is in a what looks to be a polyester dress that was made in the pattern of, my real doll and I have matching dresses. She should have worn that outfit for her dinner with Dirk. She looks like a deranged former child actor. The panic in Rose's voice is coming from the issue with Blanche's car, but before she can explain what's going on, Blanche says she's changed her mind about selling it to her. It's a lemon of a car, and she can't stand selling it to a friend. Saying it's the noisiest thing to come out of Detroit, the capital of America's car industry, when we had one, and also the home of Motown Records, where Martha and the Vandellas were signed. With songs like Heat Wave and Dancing in the Streets, these ladies could sing, and sing they did. Blanche confesses to learning the car was a dud and she was only going to get half of Blue Book. That's referencing the Kelly Blue Book, the source for car pricing. The Kelly family actually started as a car dealership in the 1920s before focusing full-time on their published Blue Book in the 60s. But none of that concerns Rose because there's no car to buy. It's been stolen. There's a weird moment here where it seems like someone might have gotten their timing wrong with their lines. Sophia hears the commotion of the ladies next to her, so she takes off the headphones and yells, What? Rose kind of weirdly gets super close to Sophia and screams in her face, They stole Blanche's! As if the joke was that she still thought Sophia had her headphones on or she just couldn't hear because she was old. But then Blanche butts in with, Way to go, Rose. I loan you a car and you let it get stolen. You noticed that too, that that was kind of a clunky moment. Who stepped on the line? Did Sophia? I think Blanche. Oh, yeah. Because yes. Rose is yelling at Sophia and I think she was... They were trying to get more of a moment there, or they didn't allow the I think timing. That they, yeah, they definitely wanted an audience reaction because yeah. that was funny. And then I think Blanche jumped the jumped I her line so a little bit. I think so too, but I think it also must have been the best take. Yeah, that they were like, ah, it was fine. <laughs> it's just TV. No, no one's gonna watch this again. What in forty years they'll be watching this and tearing it apart? I don't think so. Jokes on you, that person. We're the cool guys doing it. <laughs> We're the one taking your work apart 40 years later. Before Blanche can get so mad she kicks Rose out of the house, Sophia points out, Doy, you had insurance, you lose the car, and you get paid because they can't prove that it was a junker. It's a win-win. Rose has now had a moment to process that Blanche was basically going to rip her off and sell her a totally junked car. Blanche just giggles it away and they head inside. Sophia goes back to her music before the purple princess herself, Dorothy, comes in asking where her shoes are. Sophia starts to guilt her and ask questions of her relationship with Glenn before Dorothy sits down with her. She begs her mom to just be content that she is happy. But Sophia knows her daughter too well, and overhearing her nightly pacing tell her she's not okay with the situation, even if her words say otherwise. Knowing all that, Sophia calls her out. You're hating yourself for what you're doing, and you can't tell me otherwise. Sophia suggests they go bowling. That way she can rent shoes. Retaliating, Dorothy turns the cassette player up to a painful level. Back at the same hotel, Dorothy is on the top cover of the bed! I have a really low bar when it comes to gross stuff, but even I take the top blanket off. Why? 
because the thin blankets and sheets are easy to put into a washing machine. Heavy bedspreads are not. That's why they are only washed about four times a year. Now that's a cocoa, oh boy. <laughs> that's a cocoa call the authorities. I didn't know that. <laughs> Wait, you didn't know that? I didn't know that they, they wash them so infrequently. Oh. But I, I always pull, you gotta always. get that. One, they're get... ugly. Two, they don't do anything. They're not soft. They're not warm. They are just like to cover the bed. Yeah. They're from the germ other ca- filth. catcher. Yeah, that's it. It's just a, an upsetting fact, is what it is. It's just an upsetting fact, is what I was going to say. And then I said it. Goodbye. Oh, boy. Glenn comes walking out of the bathroom Dorothy had tried to escape out of earlier and starts to talk the logistics about their cars and dinner and who needs to be where. Because I'm realizing in this moment that they actually just went straight to the hotel. They didn't even worry about dinner. And then they were going to come back to the hotel again, I guess. Or maybe they just pay for a couple hours. That seems like an expensive hobby. Dorothy cancels dinner because she realizes she needs to end things. This guy is not going to leave his wife, but she, especially after being the wife at home, can't live life as the other woman, or side piece, as the kids say, the kids of 2005. Glenn fights back. She can't break up because she's unhappy with the situation and her needs aren't being met. She signed off on those when she got in the relationship. Boo, Glenn. Then he gets to the real reasoning. Dorothy is a backup plan, but it's not secure enough for him to divorce his wife. If he and Dorothy broke up, he'd be starting all over and be alone and in his 50s. Now, this was pre-internet dating, so I'm sure things were much harder then. However, fear of loneliness is no reason to stay in any relationship, and Dorothy knows that. She gives us a top-tier Dorothy inspirational speech, that if the love is there, safety doesn't matter. That at any age, love is scary. And that being the exciting escape from the secure home life is not what she is looking for in a partner. Glenn, in his continued cowardice, asks her to think about what she's throwing away. Excuse you, Glenn? What she is throwing away? And Dorothy's like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm throwing away my life if I just sit around and wait for you, bucko. She knows she's going to be sad, but she knows she's doing the right thing by leaving. Then, in a statement that I need crocheted into a frame for my wall, she says, If I continue this, I'll end up alone, and I care about myself too much to let that happen. Love to hear self-love. Before she leaves, Glenn throws out a desperate, I love you, which is giving an, I love you too, and a touch to the lips. In a rarely seen car pulling into the driveway shot, we're back at the house to find Sophia doing the dishes. Dorothy breaks the news that she and Glenn are done and is surprised when her mother gives her an I'm sorry. Dorothy starts to help put the dishes away, but there's clearly an elephant in the room. Sophia was never angry about what Dorothy was doing. She was just worried about her getting hurt. Dorothy wasn't mad at Sophia. How could she be? She was just someone who cared about looking out for her. And you pointed out, There are some interesting angles in this episode at this point, both when Sophia says she's listening at the door and at this point when the girls are coming in and they're talking. The closest approximation, I would say, is like a soap opera or uh, public broadcasting, some like really old stagey looking thing. Very Yeah, or like a British something. Weird over the shoulder, weird close ups and this like not at all what you, at least what I associate uh, sitcom. And then, yeah, and then the angle where it's like they're, uh, against the kitchen wall by where the phone is. Yeah. But then the camera's kind of from the kitchen sink. Yeah. 
showing them against the wall. Yeah, it's yeah, all it's very a, strange. It's that thing where they they kind of break that invisible wall we talk about. They yeah. come, they, they cross the threshold, and that that really messes things. That's up. exactly what it is. Yeah. yeah, they shouldn't be there. They're the not so much breaking there. the fourth wall by making us like they're not looking at the camera. But you're right; they do cross that sitcom invisible boundary. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. Well done, Coco. Thanks. Dorothy and Sophia talk everything out, and all is well when Rose and Blanche come home after Joy riding in Blanche's new car. Dorothy shares with the girls that she's ended things with Glenn. Blanche invites all the girls to go out for a spin, but Dorothy just feels like sitting. They all make excuses as to why they also don't want to go out so that they're being supportive of their friend. It doesn't take long for the quiet sadness to become overwhelming and for Dorothy to change her mind. So off they go to ride in Blanche's new car, and if things go how she wants, which since it's her car, they probably will, they'll go to a little spot she knows where there are men who wrestle naked in the mud. I only wonder if that's like a sink, an open, like an actual business, or it's just a mud pit where like naked men go. But you know what? She just wants to watch. That's true. She's not worried about bringing anybody home. She's like, hey, you guys do you literally if you want. I'm just here to watch. From the car. <laughs> With little opera glasses. <laughs> yes. Dainty. When it comes to relationships, the only ones that know what's going on in it are the ones in it. Sure, you may think you have an idea as a friend or maybe even a fan, but unless you are in those quiet, intimate, personal moments, you just don't know. While Rose kept Dorothy to a moral high ground and maybe forced her to look inward, she did it in a harsh and judgmental way. She couldn't have expected Dorothy to come talk to her about her dilemma and decision-making because she knew there wasn't room for understanding. It's Blanche's open-mindedness and quiet acceptance of Dorothy's situation that allows for her to talk it out and really find what it is that would be the best for her. We are in relationships to help us support our other relationships. There is no room for judgment if you want openness. Additionally, Dorothy taught us so much in this episode that you can change. You don't have to be the bad person that would never do that or the bad person that is doing it so I shouldn't stop. You can take time in your feelings until you sort them out and find out what you need. You can hold boundaries with your friends and self, making it clear when someone has crossed them. But most importantly, she was fearless. She didn't fear the heartache she knew would be on the other side of the breakup. She didn't fear the loneliness. She didn't fear the judgment of her friends. She never made herself to be less than just because she did something she knew was wrong. She loved herself unconditionally and protected herself from the harm of an unhealthy relationship. My queen always. Also, don't sell your car, a lemon or not, to a friend. It's just bad news. Until next time, thank you for listening, and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we learn that Rose probably has a golden vagine, or maybe it's more of a black widow, and she just might be eating her how-dare-you-date-a-married-man words. That's all on next week's episode. I'm going to, I'm going to gasp. <laughs> Preemptively gasp. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> she learned from her great grunt in their transmission they got a some sort of lethal injection right in their <laughs> <laughs> their windshield wiper fluid and they die
post them everywhere, send them to us. They're the great. They're the great. Making eyes over the days, Dorothy cut the lunch lines. Calls it the lightning bolt. No, she doesn't. She calls it being thunderstruck. <laughs> More questions than answers. That's what I'm here for. You are a little bit taller. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but I just meant... Luck-wise. I'm more destined for it than you, I think. <laughs> Hashtag powder. Oh, I wish. Hashtag the bad scene. Except for the production of that movie. Hey-o. Hey-o. Google that. <laughs> Google the director-writer of powder. You're going to yeah, have a good time. Yeah, more fun facts. Speaking of lightning, the Ooh. movie powder. Ooh. You could lose an afternoon reading about that situation. You're going to lose your desire to watch any of the movies he did. And it will absolutely ruin the Jeepers Creepers franchise for you. <laughs> and Soul Siler, my personal sandwich... Yeah. Dorothy adds that she feels amazing that not so much in these... The marriage sucks and should... She's clearly a... Keep it small. Keep it tight. That's what everybody said. And they, for many reasons, there's probably only one store, yeah, that can accommodate the length of Dorothy. This is a little bit of a plot whoopsie for the the head coach of the American football team, the Miami Dolphins, from 1979 to 1999. Rose now had a moment to process. Rose has had. Rose had now. <laughs> Rose has now had a moment in a rarely seen park. Par calling in. Par calling in. Let's take that one again. <laughs> Final cut. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.